Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. In the summer of 2014, the Washington Post's Tehran correspondent, Jason Rezaian, was preparing to return home to the US with his wife, Yegane, for a two-month sabbatical, when the couple were arrested by the Iranian authorities. Jason was falsely accused of spying for the US government and was to spend 544 days in prison until his release in January 2016. His book about that period in his life, Prisoner, has just been published. And I'm very glad to say that Jason joins me now on the line from Washington, D.C. Jason, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Um, your story, Jason, as told in your book, it starts in July 2014. And your life then seemed to be in, in, in a great place. You were relatively newly married. Uh, mm-hmm. Your wife, who, who's Iranian, also like you, had a very kind of high level job in journalism. She was a correspondent for from Bloomberg News. You were the correspondent for the Washington Post. And and suddenly, just as you were about to take uh, this two-month break in the US, your, your home was raided by the authorities. Can you take us back to that night and tell us what happened? Yeah, I mean, as you say, we were getting ready to come back here. We'd been married for 15 months. And uh, one of the main reasons for our trip was that uh, my wife had been um, uh, cleared for her permanent residency or green card. Um, which is, you know, one of the bureaucratic hoops that anybody who, any American who marries a, a foreign national has to go through. And uh, it was a sort of a success that we had achieved uh, uh, that approval and we were getting ready to come back and, and maybe explore options of, of starting uh, the bicontinental life that both of us had long envisioned and felt uh, was within our reach. So, you know, at at uh, the time, on uh, the night of July 22nd, 2014, my wife and I were preparing to uh, to go to a birthday party for my mother-in-law. We were dressed up and uh, getting ready to go. Uh, we had called a taxi service to pick us up at our high-rise apartment. Uh, we got a call from uh, the, um, the building's reception that the car had arrived, and we made our way down to uh, to the garage where it would pick us up. And when the elevator door opened, there were three men standing there, one of them with a gun pointed right at my head. And uh, that was the beginning of our crazy, insane ordeal. Um, they pried their way into the elevator, took us back up to our apartment, separated. She and I uh, ransacked our, our home. Um, you know, rifling through everything you can imagine, down to to cutting open tea bags, uh, and it was an, just uh, an insane scene. Uh, it started with the three of them, but very quickly there were a couple of dozen plainclothes security officials. Some of them with um, surgical masks to hide their identity, others to uh, with guns, uh, and still others who had video cameras who were taping the the whole affair. So that was our our introduction to the security forces and the people that would be um, our captors and and those that were controlling our fate for the next year and a half. Some strange things have been happening with your emails in the previous few days. But apart Mm. from that, did you have any inkling that the authorities had you in their sights at that point? Look, as a journalist working in Iran or any authoritarian state, you assume that your moves are being surveilled, that your phone calls are listened to, that your emails are read to some degree. Uh, the traditional or, or the, the ways that, that we've come to create a more secure uh, cyber atmosphere for ourselves aren't often available in those countries. Um, so, you know, we, we assume that we're being watched 
always there had been a, a, a ramping up of of uh, what appeared to be cyber attacks on our our email and, and social media accounts uh, but for me I took it as a matter of course I mean I had been working in Iran for five years at that point I had many journalist friends um, almost all of them had been harassed by authorities at one point or another uh, but this was was very disconcerting because literally the day that we were arrested, I went to the press ministry, uh, which is overseen by the Ministry of Intelligence, uh, and complained to them that we were experiencing these these attacks on our email and such. And they said, no, no, there's no there's no problem whatsoever. You know, you've been cleared for another year of uh, of your press card, and they handed it to me. Uh, so, and I went along my way with with confidence that everything was going to get back to normal soon enough. And and can you remember what your first thoughts were that night in terms of how much trouble you were in at that point? Did, did you think this is a misunderstanding and it will all blow over very quickly? I certainly thought it was a misunderstanding. And as the the session, that first interrogation interrogation session. Uh, went on, I thought to myself, okay, not only is this a misunderstanding, these guys have a, 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 a plan, and this plan is just to scare me, maybe compel me to leave the country for a while. Whatever this is, it's, you know, it's not that serious. We'll get through it. My wife, on the other hand, was confident that uh, this was something very bad, and um, you know, I, I never thought that I would own the record uh, for the you know foreign journalist with the longest stay in Evan prison, and I suppose in terms of your wife's different interpretation, just to fill out the the picture for readers, your your wife had grown up in Iran, whereas you're from California, though your your dad was Iranian, so you have those kind of Iranian roots. Yeah, and I mean you know she had grown up in that that country in that system. Uh, everybody to some extent has a relative or a friend who uh, has been arrested uh, and spent time in prison. It's a sort of normal course of affairs inside Iran. Um, and I think that she was was clear that this was more than just a random mix-up or um, something that we would be able to talk our way out of. And you were pretty much immediately separated from your wife, and then you were held in solitary confinement for some time. And you describe in the book how it was almost like in the movies, one of the first things you noticed was on the wall, previous prisoners had carved not just to to keep track of the days, and, and you ended up doing the same. And how did you cope with that being in that environment? You know, it's um, it's a survival instinct that kicks in pretty quickly. Solitary confinement is designed to disjoint you from reality. Uh, it, it succeeds at doing that very quickly. So your number one goal is to try and, and maintain some grasp on reality, on what you know is right and wrong, uh, your memory of facts and truth, uh, in a in a in a sphere where those who are holding you in that space uh, are doing everything they can to to make you pliant uh, and manipulate you into saying and doing things that you certainly don't want to do. So um, it's a it's a tough slog to get through something like that. But looking around and seeing the numbers uh, on the wall, some of them three or four days, uh, others well into the hundreds. Uh, you begin, and I think that this is the real um, um, mechanism that kicked in for me, not then in solitary, but over time, that you begin to see yourself on the long continuum of people who have been um, the victims of great injustices. 
I'm not, I'm not unique in this. My wife and I are not unique in this. People all around us in that prison were also there for things that they hadn't done. Um, and there's you know, centuries, if not millennia of history uh, of people <laughs> that have suffered similar fates. So for me, it was, um, it was good to remember that. Uh, but while you're going through solitary confinement, it's a state of confusion, fear, uh, and just the, the, the overwhelming hope that at some point you will no longer be uh, held in solitary. And I can tell you, after I came out of solitary, after 49 days, um, although I was still in prison, although I was still being denied every imaginable right to defend myself, although I was denied access to a lawyer and um, visitations with my family for a very long period of time, uh, I, it felt a thousand times better. I don't know if it's true to say it was a relief, but I think the only sort of human interaction you had then during that time was when you were taken from your cell for interrogation sessions. And I think it was during those you began to learn something about what it was the Iranians seemed to be looking for or what they seemed to, 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 think, they, to think they had on you, for want of a better way of putting it. And they, they had trawled through your emails and, and they managed to come up with some pretty bizarre constructions on, on very straightforward communications. I, I'm kind of rushing along because I wanted to bring it to the one about the avocados. Um, just... <laughs> Tell us about yeah. how your interest in avocados kind of seemed to <laughs> arise, so, cause great suspicion you know, on their part. I, I, um, my understanding of these things now is that when someone is arrested and in, in, in by the the authorities that took me and being tried in the Revolutionary Court in Iran, the the verdict has already been decided. The sentence has already been decided. Everything that that they are going to say about you has been decided. What they have to do is come up with a plausible theory and a story to back it up. Uh, so you're you're guilty from the get-go, and it's their job to construct a narrative. In my case, they didn't have much to work with, and uh, one thing that they latched onto was a you know a Kickstarter project, a crowdfunding website, where people uh, put up uh, projects to raise money to do things that that they want to do and. The public can invest in exchange for uh, the possibility of uh, some sort of rewards, not cash rewards, but oftentimes, uh, you know, a, a nominal gift, a book or a CD or a T-shirt. In my case, I was trying to bring avocados to Iran. I wanted to know why they didn't exist in Iran, if it had something to do with sanctions or if it had to do with some Islamic prohibition. Are they haram? I didn't think they were. Uh, but who knew? And this was just one more attempt by me at a time when I was freelancing years before I worked at the Washington Post to uh, take an approach to, to understanding Iran that was counterintuitive and a bit off the cuff. Um, it didn't work. I'd never raised uh, the funds to bring avocados to Iran, but literally the first night of interrogations, I was told the reason you're here, uh, you know, we have this proof uh, that, uh, that you're the CIA station chief. I said, well, what's that proof? They said, well, this avocado project, it's, this is code for something. We just don't know what, uh, and you're going to tell us. And I, I stuck to my line that it was just avocados and, um, they weren't having it. And, you know, this is sort of, again, it's, it's ludicrous. It's crazy. Um, it's absurd. And I want people to be able to, to, when they read this book, step into that world of absurdity that I was trapped in for all of that time, uh, because I think it's more instructive than, um, than just telling you 
how miserable it is. And and sometimes, in fact, your main interrogator, a man called Kazam, he seemed to kind of share in the knowledge of the absurdity of it all. You actually, occasionally, you even had a laugh with him. I tried to. And, uh, you know, I, that's a defense mechanism for me and many people. Um, but I realized that the more I could laugh with him, the more I could get him to tell me about himself, uh, the more I could win him over, the more likely it was that I was going to be able to to get him to say things that he probably shouldn't have said to me, give me information that he shouldn't have given me. Uh, I, I can't say that we had a, a, a friendship, but we had a relationship uh, of two people that spent a year and a half together and went on this crazy roller coaster ride, a roller coaster ride that was being played out um, in the geopolitics of, of the moment. Uh, at one of the high stakes diplomatic endeavors of uh, the 21st century so far. Um, but here are two people out of view who are hashing some of these things out. It was our own mini negotiation. And, um, and in the end, he lost. You, you even got him to admit at one point, more or less, that his dream job would be to be a policeman in Texas. Uh, he, he offered that up himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that... People tell me, uh, ask me all the time that, you know, these goons who run the Islamic Republic, they're not real Iranians. They're so different than everybody else. And I said, no, no, no. My experience of a year and a half in Evin prison is that uh, everybody there is just as Iranian as everyone else. They may have uh, different goals and different allegiances, but ultimately uh, their thought patterns and their aspirations are are the same as, as everyone else in the society. One of the things, Jason, I found most disturbing or almost scary when I read the book was about the early chapters was um, the fact that in the beginning you, you had no contact with the outside world and they told you that they had reported that yourself and your wife had been killed in a car crash, leaving mm. you to wonder what do people outside know about our situation and, and, and what's being done? Did you have that worry from the, at the start that people weren't taking enough interest in your case or otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was desperately concerned about that. I thought in the early days, if this doesn't become a, a, a big deal publicly, it can blow over and we can return to our life in Iran. But as the days turned to weeks, I realized, no, this is not something that can be tied up neatly in a tidy way uh, and allow us to return back to business as usual in Iran. Um, so as those days mounted, I, I hoped against hope that um, that people, my family, the Washington Post, other friends and, and, and people I knew in media would be raising an alarm. Um, I, I couldn't have known uh, that that was the case, but I hoped that it was. And in retrospect, after I was released, I saw that the the calls for our freedom began within hours of our arrest. Um, and it's one more sign of the the deep uh, mendacity and misinformation that they were subjecting us to. Um, and it, it, it was indeed torturous. In fact, you described later when your conditions had improved and you'd been moved out of solitary confinement and you had access to a television and mm. you had this experience of seeing Marty Barron, the editor of the Washington Post, mm -hmm. put a question directly to the president of Iran, Rouhani, about your situation. That must have been, or what was your feeling when you saw that? I can tell you, so I saw Marty last night. Um, he, he and I were at an event and we had a few minutes to just sort of 
uh, chill out and relax. And my wife Yegi was there, and we were having a conversation. And I just, I every time I see this person who's uh, such a key figure in my story, I always think back to to seeing him on on television uh, demanding my release to Rohani. And uh, it takes courageous people like that to um, to raise the stakes. Um, and ultimately, it's a credit to him. It's a credit to the publisher of the Washington Post and the entire staff and 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 all my colleagues there that there wasn't a day that went by that they weren't keeping that light of hope alive and pushing uh whatever levers they could to get me home um so now that that i'm back and i'm you know surrounded by these people i'm back to work at the washington post full-time now um i i'm i'm filled with not only a pride but um a great feeling of comfort and safety. Uh, these people are my protectors. I think most of us, the picture we have of Marty Baron is as he's portrayed in the Spotlight film. He certainly comes across yeah. in that film as a very dogged and persistent, um, you know, uh, character, but he certainly came through, through for you in this situation. Well, he, he's also a hell of a lot funnier in real life. Okay. What about Barack <laughs> Obama? He was the president at the time. Did you think he could have done more? You, you, you did notice, uh, I suppose, when, once you got over the initial, the first time he mentioned your name, that was kind of great news. He's taken an interest. But after a while, you noticed he couldn't even pronounce your name properly. Well, look, I mean, I, 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 I take a couple of uh, of jabs at uh, at Obama in in the text, but not because I, I don't think that he was doing enough. I mean, uh, that's the most complicated job in the world, uh, being the president of the United States. And um, you know, I I understood that it would take uh, him to bring me home. Uh, it wasn't that the Iranian regime was going to suddenly decide to do the right thing and uh, send me packing. Um, I've had the opportunity to meet with President Obama, with his top um, ministers and and deputies over the past couple of years, interviewed some of them. And consistently, one of the things that that people say to me is, we only wish we could have brought you home sooner. Um, It was not Barack Obama's fault that I was imprisoned in Iran. And it, I don't think it was his or his administration's fault that it that took so long to get me out. It was the obstinance and um, and and lying nature of some of the people uh, in the Iranian regime who understood that um, that they have a long history of taking hostages and that I was one more in that in that long line. So ultimately, I think the U.S. government did uh, what it needed to do to to get me home. But I credit my my family, uh, my big brother, uh, who was such a a, a dogged uh, advocate for me from the outset. My mother, who is an American woman who made the decision to come to Tehran to keep a a, a public uh, face to our fate within the Islamic Republic. My wife, who understood how to navigate this landscape that she grew up in uh, to our advantage. Uh, and then, you know, my colleagues at the Washington Post and others like Anthony Bourdain, who never stopped talking about me, never stopped pushing. Um, so, you know, it had to, all of these little pieces had to come together to get it to the point where my fate was uh, that important to, to uh, national interests as decided by the U.S. president uh, that 
they ensured that I was coming home. What you don't know, and what we didn't know at the time, was that secret negotiations for my release and the release of other Americans being held started uh, four months into my imprisonment. Uh, but obviously that wasn't going to be sp- spoken about at that time and, and not thing not something that we could know about. And of course, Jason, your imprisonment took place against the backdrop of the negotiations that were going on. And this mm. was Obama's, I suppose, prime foreign policy focus at the time was concluding the nuclear deal with Iran. Um, and this was a deal whereby they would reduce nuclear activities in return for right. an easing of sanctions. Um, did it, at what point did it become apparent to you that you were a bargaining chip in those negotiations? I think by the spring of 2015, six or seven months into my imprisonment, it was very obvious and when my trial started in May of 2015, um, there was four trial sessions spread out over a three-month period. It was obvious that these were, these were timed with the negotiations. I think my, the battle over me was being fought on two fronts. One, domestically, in which opponents, domestic opponents of the nuclear deal, uh, saw me and and imprisoning me as one way to to complicate the negotiations. Um, But the Rouhani administration, who was on the other side of that, and frankly, I I think would have liked to see me uh, released earlier because it did them uh, no domestic benefit to have me and others, other Americans in prison. They realized as well, okay, now that we've turned this into our tried and true hostage uh, framework, uh, we should get something out of this deal as well. So it was it was a pretty precarious state to be in. And when the nuclear deal was signed in July of fifteen uh, of two thousand fifteen, and I was not released, that was the moment when I thought to myself, "Well, wait a minute. Although we all think that this is connected, unless you know the United States government is acting in a way that it is connected." Um, I'm going to be here for a very long time. And there were there were no indications of all of these things that were going on out of plain view. Um, so that, from, from, from July 2015 until I was ultimately released six months later, was a very, very, very tense six months for me. And what ultimately was the key, do you think, to securing your release? Well, I mean, uh, they, they had negotiated uh, these separate components of that deal. I mean, there was... As you mentioned, Iran would curtail aspects of its nuclear program in exchange for the lifting of sanctions. Um, Several Iranians being held in American prisons would be released uh, in exchange for myself and several Americans being held in Iranian prisons. There was the question of the large amount of money that uh, was being returned to Iran uh, in a deal that that the Shah had had a, a weapons deal. Shah had, had prepaid for weapons in the late 70s, and when the Islamic Republic was formed, the U.S. decided not to return that money. There's a, a crim, uh, an international court in The Hague set up to deal with these sorts of disputes, and has been since the early 80s. Uh, the U.S. was going to have to pay a very large amount in fines and interest to close that deal. They decided ultimately to do it all in one day. And, um, you know, it was um, a multi-part, kind of moving part deal uh, that almost fell apart right at the end because the Iranians didn't want to adhere to specific aspects of the deal over my release and that and, and my wife being involved in it. And I don't want to go too deep into it because I hope people read it. 
uh, when I think about it, the, the hair on my arm still raises. Yes. Well, Jason, just, just on, and before we wrap the, the discussion, um, as we speak, there's another case, of course, that's getting a lot of attention on this side of the Atlantic and prob- probably in the US as well, which is that of Nazanin Zakari Ratliff, a British woman who is now in jail in Iran. And her husband said recently that she was actually asked, she was offered a deal whereby she, if she agreed to spy for Iran, they would release her. And I think that rings true, doesn't it, for you? Because I, I think a similar offer was put to you at the outset, wasn't it, when you were arrested? I think, yeah. I mean, I, I was offered that multiple times. I don't know how earnest those offers are. Um, but what I do know is that Nazanin uh, is being held in a very similar way that I was. And it's very clear to me and anyone who knows anything about Iran's uh, history of doing this, that she is being held until the, um, the the British government decides that they will give in to whatever Iranian demands have been laid forth. I have no insight into the conversations over her release. Uh, what I do know is that um, they haven't been effective because this is almost uh, three years. I realized recently that she just passed uh, the 1,444-day mark. That's 500 days longer than I was imprisoned. I think it's an atrocity uh, and an incredible injustice that a young mother uh, would be subjected to this, that uh, a little girl would be stripped from the care of her mother, denied access to her own father uh, for such an extended period of time, almost three years now, and uh, all because uh, the, the Iranian regime thinks that by doing this, they can get something from the UK government. Uh, it's disgusting to, to put people in this sort of situation. And ultimately, whether or not she agreed to do something for them and whether or not they would ever act on that, uh, I mean, her captors, uh, is irrelevant. Nobody should be put in the situation that, that she and I were forced to endure. Well, Jason, I'm glad your ordeal is, is over. At least you're, you're now global opinions writer at the Washington Post. Do you think you'll ever go back to Iran someday? I'm a very optimistic person, Chris, and I think that I will certainly go back one day. But uh, a lot's going to have to change for me to feel safe and, and comfortable doing that. A lot of people will have to come and go. Uh, but I think, you know, one of the main things that will have to happen is for somebody in the Iranian regime to stand forward and say, you know, we made a mistake. You didn't do anything wrong, and we took you, and this was a brazen and callous act of hostage-taking, and now we realize that we shouldn't have been doing that for the last 40 years. I don't see any sign that that's going to happen, because this regime uh, was doing this long before they took me, and you know, in the example that you mentioned uh, of Nazanin and others, uh, they continue to do it. So... Um, I won't be going back uh, as long as they're doing this. Well, uh, Jason, um, your book is called Prisoner. It's published by HarperCollins. It's customary at this point of a discussion, like just to say it's a great read, but it really is a terrific read. It's, it's a, a dark story written with a, with a light touch and um, I highly recommend it. And thanks a lot for coming on to talk to us today. Thanks for having me on, Chris. That's all for this week. For more coverage of foreign affairs, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.